Hello and welcome to episode 209 of Turkey Book Talk. Happy New Year, wishing you a pleasant and peaceful 2024. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X, Instagram and or Facebook. I'm also on Blue Sky if you're on there as well. In this, our first episode of 2024, we welcome Ilkim Buke Okyar, Associate Professor in Political Science and International Relations at Istanbul's Yeditepe University and the author of Arabs in Turkish Political Cartoons, 1876 to 1950, National Self and Non-National Other, published by Syracuse University Press. The book looks at how the image of the Arab in Turkish popular culture transformed from the late 19th to the mid 20th century, a key period when new ideas of national identity were emerging and when dividing lines between Arabs and Turks were sharpening in response to historical, political circumstances and ideological imperatives. In our conversation, we also bring the subject up to the present day, taking in the impact of the influx of millions of Syrian migrants since 2011 and even more recently the Israel Gaza war. We obviously had this conversation before last week's controversy or shitstorm over the cancellation of the Galatasaray Fenerbahce football match in Riyadh. But if you've been following that story, hopefully some of the themes that we discuss will reflect interestingly on it. Before we get started, I'm going to appeal once again for support. This podcast takes a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Supporting on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific and now updated discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use that to purchase any of hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles, either as an old-fashioned physical book or as an ebook. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. And finally, to members, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ilkim Buke Okyar. The book traces how ethnic and cultural stereotypes of Arabs changed over time. So I started by asking her how and why did cartoons first draw her attention? What piqued her interest and triggered her to look more deeply into this particular aspect of Turkish popular culture? The book is basically is all about the persistence of the ethnic stereotypes and it's actually saying that these stereotypes are still relevant today. 
And when I was actually first starting to write about the Arab image, my first intention was to actually concentrate on the general perception, looking at the literature, looking at the folk culture, political cultures, all together actually to understand how did we shape and structure our understanding of our Arab other against the Turk. But that was actually during my PhD proposal. I got this question from one of the jury members and asked me, well, are you looking for like a 10-year PhD process? I said, well, not really. So they asked me to concentrate on one of them. And I picked political cartoons because political cartoons actually have this ability to help us to imagine in flesh and blood how the other actually looks like. If we just go from Benedict Anderson imagined communities, actually, we are literally imagining the other when we interfere with the political cartoons. So I thought political cartoons will be a good means to start working on how did we, how did we see, how did we stereotype our Arab other. One of the chapters in the book looks at Karagur's shadow theatre, and obviously this was a traditional entertainment that was widespread in many parts of Ottoman society, especially during Ramadan, it was popular. And you talk about how, quote, the earliest images of Arabs with their customary mannerisms and attributes can be traced back to those performances. So could you just describe that precursor for us? You know, how were Arabs typically represented in Karagur's shadow theatre? Yeah, sure. But in order to do that, I have to go a little bit about, you know, what is Karagur's shadow theatre is. It has centuries-long tradition in Ottoman and later in the Turkish popular culture. The spectacle actually entered the empire in the 16th century. Karagöz's shadow plays tend to demonstrate the multi-ethnic makeup of the Ottoman Empire. Actually, their figurines constituted probably the first visual illustrations of the various archetypes within the Ottoman public. The attributes and the qualities of these characters uh, in the plays created a set of almost standard generalization about the ethnic threats of the targeted characters. So, they literally fixed these ethnic stereotypes firmly within this artistic method. Uh, it was all about symbolism. The plots of the place in Karagöz theater were pretty much the reflections of typical events that took place in the streets of the capital. And the characters were based on the stereotypes of the empire. And of course, Arabs were among these characters. The common portrait of the Arab characters was more complex and elaborate than the other ones, such as the Albanians, the Persians, or the Rum or Greek ones. They didn't have one specific mode of de- depiction, you know, unlike the others. And after all, uh, especially if we are talking about the 17th and 18th centuries, they were as much part of the Ottoman world as Kurds and Turks and the Armenians. However, Arabs in Karagöz place were also quite tricky figures. First of all, they are the oldest characters in the Ottoman Karagöz shadow theater, besides the main protagonist. Secondly, Arab is the only character that was presented in a racial formulation. Although the, Arab, the word Arab itself was mainly used to signify the sub-Saharan Africans in Ottoman and later Turkish folk language, the figurines in Karagöz uh, were portrayed within two different typologies based on their skin tone. On one hand, we had the white Arab, and on the other hand, we had the black Arab, the sub-Saharan Arab. The difference between these two figures 
was underlined also by their social status and personal characteristics. The white Arab was always perceived as an outsider coming from the Levant or Mesopotamia or Egypt, a bypasser selling sweets, grinding coffee, begging for money or bargaining carpets. His Muslim identity, of course, seemed to work as a shield for him in the multicultural metropole. Yet his untrustworthy character always revealed itself. For example, the Arab beggar promises a prayer for money to Karagos, and as soon as he receives the money, he starts murmuring something, which Karagos actually had difficult time to understand. And when he understands, he realizes that actually he's cursing instead of praying. And similar anecdotes like this seal the picture of the white Arab as dishonest and deceitful outsider. The black Arab, on the other hand, is a completely different story. Often being uh, being brought to the empire as slaves, you know, to work in the harems, you know, they became part of the household. Their na- naive nature to the level of stupidity is constantly underlined, yet they are always referred to with their loyal appeals. And this perception of the Black Arab in the Ottoman social discourse remains all the way to the 1930s. However, it takes another turn in the, after the 1930s with the rising fascism and so on. But that's like a, another area that maybe we can discuss later. So I can actually tell that uh, to me, the Orientalism, as we discuss it today, existed long before in the Karagos place it did in Europe. Yeah, I want to come on to that question of Orient- Orientalism in a while. One thing that stood out, you write at one point discussing these earlier centuries, really, and the discourse around Turks and Arabs and Arabs' place in the Ottoman Empire. You write that, quote, Muslim identity was not enough to eliminate the long-lasting, deeply embedded ethnic prejudices between Turks and Arabs, despite their both being part of the same religious community. These prejudices existed long before the discussions of nationalism and Orientalism emerged in the literary and political fields. So your research kind of goes back a number of centuries and you detect yeah. these uh, these differences and prejudices indeed going back right back there to the 17th century, etc. And that does push back against this idea that the sense of difference and resentment even was a purely modern phenomenon that emerged with nationalism and mm-hmm. disrupted this previously harmonious situation between Turks and Arabs. Yes, well... Basically, yes, when I'm discussing Karagos, this is exactly what I'm trying to make as a point, because like starting from the 16th century, actually, we see this differentiation within the uh, within the Ottoman public. It's there. Sometimes uh, it's not as harmful or it's not as it carries that romanticism to a certain extent. This is in a way something that you laugh at, you're making fun of. But that sense of untrustworthiness and that sense of this honesty towards the white Arab, not the black one, but the white Arab, the Arab from the Levant, actually remains intact in the Ottoman public. And as the imperial politics evolve, as we slowly enter the age of colonialism, the heydays of the colonialism, those actually feelings and that way of understanding the Arab other within the Ottoman society slowly shifts towards the reconfiguration of the Arab still as part of the Ottoman society because they are they are within the borders of the Ottoman society but the resentment becomes bolder as we move on towards the 18 even 19th century actually 
I, I could follow that very openly when I worked with my sources and asking the question, where is the Ottoman Orient? Because that was one of the other questions that, that I was asking. Where that Orient starts geographically, where the Ottomans were looking when they were talking about the Ottoman Orientalism, you know, or their Orient, for example. Yeah, that's really a fascinating part of the book. I thought, you know, yeah. you talk about how particularly in the 19th century, really, these ideas started to develop a lot more. And you look at how Orientalist tropes spread very widely among mm. Ottoman elites, exoticizing Arabs. Arabs, in many ways, became the Ottomans' uncivilized counterimage, just as the Ottomans had yeah. themselves been perceived as the kind of exotic other by Europeans. You write that, quote, starting from the late 19th century, Ottoman lithographic cartoons engaged in creating a sense of Ottoman modernity by depicting the Orient in a manner similar to their European contemporaries. They created, subjugated and drew their own Orient, just as their European colleagues did. In many ways for Turkey, the Arab in his kefir and traditional garb constituted the definitive other. Yet, in contrast to Europe's dichotomy of us and them, for most Turks, the Arab did not start out as an external and exotic entity. He was actually a familiar, though sometimes ridiculed, member of the imperial family, and his cartoon image conjured up a much more complex set of emotions. So that's, uh, I thought, a really interesting passage because it gets to this question of Orientalist tropes being adopted yeah. by Ottoman elites, but they were doing it in a kind of internal way to a group within the imperial family, essentially, mm -hmm. Arabs. So could you just uh, unwrap some of this complexity <laughs> for us? Yeah, sure. Um, well, Orientalism within the Ottoman discourse cannot really be understood or cannot be separated from its European discourse, especially young Ottoman intellectuals who were expelled uh, from the Abdulhamid's despotism in the beginning of the 20th century to Europe, were eager, they were eager to carry their own Orientalist position against the empire's Arab provinces. So often pointing the Arabs as the scapegoat of the failing empire, we see them actually depicting exactly the same way their views by taking into account the stereotypes that were equally present in the European political cartoons. So, for example, we will be seeing uh, the famous French cartoonist Domier's representation of the Ottoman other that signifies the Orientalist version of the European self the same way of illustrating will be adopted by the Ottoman cartoonists in illustrating their their own other and this time of the Arabs actually. Of course, uh, in the book, I have all these political cartoons, all these representations and uh, uh, and figures where you can actually visualize what I'm talking about in a way better sense. But if you really look at the pictures, you see this in a much more clearer fashion. And when we come. When we start actually familiarizing with this this way of illustrating and imagining the Ottoman other, the outcome was nothing but the Ottoman Orientalism in its cruelest sense. And this is exactly what the Ottoman cartoonists did at the time. We're coming up to the kind of modern period, I suppose, now. And later on, you talk about how, as the empire basically unraveled, some of these tropes, some of these themes really did become heightened. They really went into overdrive, basically. And particularly, obviously, the First World War was a key a key point there. The Arab Revolt of 1916 particularly strengthened this negative image of Arabs. And yeah. then, obviously, the post-war narrative began to be heavily deployed in the uh, 1920s. You 
talk about how, you know, these stereotypes depicted the Arab as this really dishonest, backstabbing savage, essentially. And the Arab revolt was seen as proof of that. Also, the negative, this negative image of the Arab was really used as a kind of non-national other to consolidate and unify the new Turkish national identity. So could you just talk about that early Republican period, how cartoons in popular newspapers, what role did cartoons play? I can tell that during the World War, we see the Arab stereotypes here and there within the publications, but not as often that we see starting of the Republic. The Arab returned as the subject of illustration only after the heydays of the national struggle. So with the end of the independence war and the signing of the Lausanne Treaty in July 1923, the state of war between the allied powers was officially being terminated as the Arab type re-emerged as part of the disputes with the signatories of the treaty, especially with uh, Britain and France. And following uh, 1923, around the emerging British goals in Mosul, the Arab of the new republic in Europe found expression, you know, in the Turkish press as the detested other this time, in a way cruel, vulgar way than before. The one aspect that did not change during this time, of course, is the continuous depiction of the, these Arab stereotypes in their kepiyes and garbs, signifying their uncivilized uh, status. And of course, now we are talking about the borders, and these borders became even bolder than they were before. So this, this is what cultivated the perception of the Arab as the other for the coming decades following the emergence of the Turkish Republic. And of course, the World War I narratives of the Arabs being the backstabbers offered for the new republic to reproduce, based on this narrative, a new detested Arab other uh, constantly reproduced within the political cartoons and constantly manipulating, of course, the audience imagination of the ex-Ottoman lands inhabitants of the, as the Arab other. And obviously, central to the book is your study of the cartoons and caricatures in the popular press that really crystallized a lot of these ideas that really popularized among the public this image and, and these tropes, these stereotypes, essentially. What sources did you look at? I mean, you talk particularly about two particular satirical periodicals at the time, Karagöz and Akbaba. Yeah. You know, what was the character of those two particular outlets? First of all, the print media was going through a serious crisis during the World War, as the rest of the world. So only few cartoon magazines could survive the World War. And one of them was Karagos, actually. Karagos is probably stands as the one single political cartoon magazine that actually continued its publication throughout the war. So in that sense, Karagos is kind of important to me to look at as a source in that sense. Of course, it had this continuance, continuity within itself, you know, because the publication starts with the 1908 constitutional revolution. And since then, we see all the way to the 1950s, it's continuous publication. So you see how actually it continues to carry uh, the political agenda, the state discourse as the, you know, uh, state's word of mouth into the, to its public. And during the war and after the war, we see 
Caragos actually always working with the groups that are in power. Uh, especially during the war, we see the, the emergence of the Ankara government under Mustafa Kemal, and Karagöz actually sides with the Ankara government instead of the empire, the Istanbul government, for example. So that's Karagöz. But of course, throughout the Ottoman political cartoon publishing, we also have the more modern political cartoon magazines that follow the more modern line of artistic illustration. For example, Kalem or Jem. They, unfortunately, they do not uh, have the long-lasting publishing experience as as Karagos, but they still tend to, actually, the cartoonists of these magazines actually tend to jump from one magazine to another one, closing one and reopening the other one. And during the war, we see Aydede, for example, kind of siding with the government, Ottoman government in Istanbul, uh, and publishing totally against the Ankara government. And it's kind of funny because at the moment that actually the war has been lost and in 1923, with the establishment of the Republic, either this stops overnight publishing and it changes the entire cadre with a new name called Akbaba. So Akbaba was another source in that sense. I looked when I was looking at that specific period of time and all of a sudden they start, of course, publishing pro-government instead of, you know, against government. It's kind of interesting to see how these things actually shift and change. So those two actually were the main two sources that I looked. Of course, there are many others that I'm working with, but they, the two of these, Akbaba and Karago, seem to provide a larger amount of political cartoons to me at the time. And is it right to say that uh, the importance of cartoons was particularly significant in this era because of the relatively low literacy rates? So obviously cartoons, caricatures had this outsized cultural influence because of the fact that the population was less literate than it is today. So cartoons had a particular power and centrality in popular culture that perhaps they don't have today. But at the time, they were really, really crucial in shaping particular public narratives for that reason. I certainly agree to that. And this is actually what I I argue in the book as well, because what happens, of course, with the alphabet reform of 1928, of course, there was a gradual change, but we see that actually now the news, the newspapers and everything's being published in uh, Latin alphabet. Of course, the visual representation becomes much more easier to grasp, easier to understand for the readers of the you know daily news. So we see actually starting with the alphabet reform, most of the daily news actually start adopting visual illustrations or the political cartoons, editorial cartoons and so on. So the power of the political cartoons actually always been noticed. They've been always been underlined starting from the 19th century. We see this in Europe especially in Britain and in France, and later on, even with the Ottoman Empire. The very first daily news that's been published in the Ottoman Empire, they also adopted visual rhetorics. And with, of course, with the Republic and with the alphabet reform, BC actually the reappearance, uh, re-underlining or magnifying of this visual rhetorics once more in the daily print. So in that sense, political cartoons become quite powerful. Of course, one of the questions that I had when writing the, pro, uh, the the book, I think it was one of my limitations, is like I couldn't find 
I mean, it, it was very difficult to measure, of course, the influence that these political cartoons had on the people. So at the end of the day, for example, I looked at Karagos and Akbaba, but I also look at the political cartoons that were published in Jumhuriyet, for example, a daily newspaper. And all of these political cartoons, most of the time, they were in line. They were quite parallel to each other. They will have the, uh, they will have the same issues being kind of delivered, the same stereotypes that have been published over and over again creating a discourse within itself, actually. So they were in series, actually. But uh, coming back to its power, to measure its power, how powerful they were, of course, it was quite difficult. I couldn't do that. But I knew that so, since the, the urban publishing also contained the intelligentsia of the New Republic, in terms of decision-making processes and the shaping of the literature, shaping of the, you know, cultural and social norms, it was quite significant, I would say. In the conclusion of the book, you link some of the themes to the questions of Syrian migrants in Turkey today. So obviously this has become, uh, in recent years, a very hot <laughs> Yeah, hot topic, yeah. Yeah, Syrian, there's a, a wide dislike, I think it's fair to say, uh, a growing kind of unwelcome atmosphere and anti-migrant sentiment more, more generally growing uh, in Turkey. So how does your research shed light on those contemporary negative attitudes towards Syrians in particular? Yeah, well, my book is actually about the everyday production of boundaries between self and the other. And especially in the case of Turkey, we see that influx of Syrian refugees following the events of 2011, for example, revived these deeply embedded perceptual boundaries in the minds of the Turkish public and created this negative public reflex against the displaced migrants. And for some years, the anti-Syrian sentiments was entangled with the anti-Erdogan feelings of some secular segments of society feeding off each other. However, the trend has gradually changed since 2019. Now we see like many side effects of Turkey's inclusive policy emerge, especially in the suburbs of big cities such as Istanbul and Ankara. The socioeconomic pressure of the increasing Syrian presence has increased the hostility towards the government's refugee policies. For example, a survey conducted in 2020, I also mentioned this in my book, by a prominent Turkish university showed that the Turks don't welcome the presence of Syrians. For example, when they make reference to these refugees, they do not use the word Syrian, they do use the word Arab. So there is this, of course, generalization, this monolith understanding of the Syrians. And the study shows that they demonize them as scapegoats for Turkey's economic and social problems. And today, the reality on the ground is that uh, approximately half of the Syrians in Turkey are ha not happy to be here. I don't know if you follow the last election, but the opposition and the government were actually racing in their proposed policies to send Syrians and other refugees back home in an effort to woo the nationalist voters. So this issue became actually the paramount in the political debate. So actually, the persistence of this long historical antipathies and forms of oppression in Turkey in imagining the Arab other is grounded somewhere deeper. And this is actually the aim of the book, you know, is just to kind of show that actually this ethnic prejudice within these two groups actually existing long before, and it's been manipulated up and down 
throughout the history based on the various state discourses. Yeah, I suppose you don't get so many caricatures these days, but contemporary <laughs> equivalent might be kind of popular sensationalist social Actually, media accounts spreading, spreading these viral claims about, you know, scandalous Syrian misbehavior across Turkey. Is that, do you think, an accurate analogy? Well, I don't know. I actually, I do have some uh, political cartoons, contemporary ones, but I cannot really, uh, I didn't include them in the book. So I left it in the 1950s. But you will be surprised to see how similar they are to their, you know, previous examples in the 1950s, 30s, and even in the 1800s. We're talking months after the start of the Israel-Gaza war and obviously massive focus on that issue in Turkey as elsewhere. Looking at how that war has been viewed by different constituencies in Turkey, how does it reflect on the themes of your book, of your research? Well, it's a very good question and very timely, actually. First of all, I want to just go on straight straight to the you know the conflict and how actually the the perception of the Arab reemerged once more. A poll that has been conducted in Turkey following October seven events show that thirty six percent of the Turkish public do not want Turkey to interfere with the conflict. Of course, this was at the beginning of the terrible events in the region, and from the first weeks of the conflict, there were two consecutive debates actually dominated the social media constantly questioning, you know, who is right, who is wrong, and who deserves what kind of questions. And the nationalist line, you know, within the within this debate in the public constantly referred to the World War I narrative of the Arab betrayal and how the Palestinians viciously massacred the Turkish soldiers in Palestine and constantly advocating that Turkey should stay neutral in the war, not get involved in the affairs of the Middle East any more than it's needed. So that was basically the very first weeks of the conflict between Hamas and Israel. And the second debate following probably the first weeks of November surfaced when a piece of false news about Turkey is bringing about 750,000 Palestinians from Gaza. And there was a huge public reaction on social media towards this news. Although by then, of course, the majority of the public was, if they were asked, they were in support of the Palestinian cause. When it came to having more Arab refugees at home, then it seemed like the red line for the generality of the public. So this firm position in the public was actually reflected in the state discourse as well. First, we saw President Erdogan, you know, having some conflicting statements saying that, well, you know, we might have or, you know, at least have some Palestinians from Gaza for certain uh, purposes. Later on, we see that this statement actually shifting is that Turkey has no intention of taking the Palestinians out of Palestine. That was Ilkim Bouquet Okyar. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 209. Remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3, Euros, or £2.50 per episode. 
Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word. Give us a shout out on your social media platforms. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter or X, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, again, Happy New Year and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.